0: Meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. wonder if you have heard yet of the um, KonMari method of decluttering. Uh, this is something that's taken the nation by storm. And uh, it's, a, it's a method of house cleaning promoted by a Japanese lady, an organizing consultant named Marie Kondo. And uh, she's got this show on Netflix and we've seen a couple of episodes in our house. And in this show, she goes into people's homes and they're just uh, you know overwhelmed with all their stuff, American homes, and she helps them declutter. And one of the things that she makes them do is you, you take every article of clothing that you own and you dump it in, in the, on the bed or in the middle of the room and you go through each article of clothing and you ask yourself, does this spark joy? And if it, it doesn't, doesn't spark joy, you throw it out. Now, this is only about clothing, not the people in the house. This only pertains <laughs> doesn't spark joy, you can throw it out. You've got you to watch out because there is this kind of uh, eastern pantheism that she she floats here. And, and if you throw the article of clothing away, you first have to say thank you to the article of clothing as if it is conscious. And so there's an eastern pantheism, pantheism at work there. So you've got to watch out for that. But... Um, I heard somebody make the point that when it comes to Jesus, you know, there are many times where his teaching does not spark joy. Many times where his teaching challenges us. And it's difficult to hear. And how do we respond to the words of Jesus when they challenge us? In our gospel reading, Jesus is teaching in his hometown. In synagogue of of Nazareth and his words are so challenging to his audience so offensive that they form a mob and try to kill him these were friends and neighbors presumably that he knew that he grew up with what was so offensive about what Jesus said I think their response to Jesus is instructive for us today because people are still rejecting Jesus for similar reasons. And I, I want to look at that in this story. Jesus has just read from Isaiah uh, 61. He was invited and this was kind of standard, standard practice in, in those days when a, a visiting rabbi, or somebody who had some prestige was in town. They were invited to address the synagogue to read the readings that were assigned for the day and to give a homily, some comments on the passage for the day. And so Jesus has just finished reading from Isaiah 61, which is a passage about the ministry of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed and announce the year of the Lord's favor. This is a picture, this passage from Isaiah 61, is a picture of what God's kingdom looks like when God's king comes. And it says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed upon Jesus. Probably a couple hundred people. Again, his hometown. They wanted to see what he was going to say next. And he said these shocking words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He is claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be God's anointed one. And it says in verse 22 that all spoke well of him and they marveled at his gracious words. Uh, That can be translated, that phrase all spoke well of him can be translated, they bore witness to him. In other words, I think The point is they bore witness to the fact that there was something in his words that contained a power, an insight, a wisdom that they couldn't quite put their finger on. They couldn't explain because after all, isn't this just Joseph's son? These words were not coming from a learned rabbi. These words were not coming from a teacher of the law. They were coming from a carpenter. They were coming from Joseph's son. And I think that's why they marveled. That's why they were astonished at his words and the claim that he was making here. But they're impressed. The hometown crowd is impressed with their hometown boy. But just underneath these, this response of astonishment or marveling at his words, I think is some skepticism because they do say, is not this Joseph's son? It's almost like, wait a second, let's not get too excited about because we all know who he is. We know his family. In Mark's version of this story, they begin to list his family members. They say, this is, this is Mary's son. We know his brothers. And they list the brothers of Jesus, James and Joseph and, and Judas and Simon. They said, don't we know his brothers? And his sisters are still with us. They're still in this village raising their families here. So, in other words, we know who he is. He's one of us. And Mark, in his version, says they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus. I think they they thought he was being presumptuous. See, they were impressed with his words, but they were skeptical about his identity. They had no problem in believing his humanity. He is one of us. After all, we know his family. But they had a hard time believing in his divinity. In his divine mission that he had been sent from God. And there is an attitude towards Jesus like this still today. There are people who marvel at Jesus' teaching. And they will praise his teaching. They will marvel at his ethical principles and they will say, Jesus was undoubtedly one of our greatest moral teachers. What he says in the Sermon on the Mount and what he said about the golden rule. These are ethical principles that we need to live by today. And so you'll get people who will praise Jesus for some of his words. But they'll reject his claim that he is the Messiah. And they'll say this business about him being the Messiah of God or the son of God. That's something that the church invented later to kind of dress Jesus up. Probably the most famous person who had that attitude towards Jesus here in the United States was our great President Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson believed that Jesus' is teaching, this is a quote from Jefferson, he believed that Jesus' is teaching is the most sublime morality which has ever fallen from the lips of man. He had high praise for Jesus' moral principles, but he rejected the idea of Jesus as the Son of God and as the Messiah. He was a brilliant man. Jefferson was a brilliant man. But there's this disconnect between saying Jesus' teachings are great and marvelous and yet I don't believe his teaching about his claim to be the Messiah. There's a disconnect there because Jesus does claim in his words and in his deeds that he is the Messiah of God. But that attitude toward Jesus persists today. Marveling at his words, appreciating his teaching, but rejecting his claim about his identity to be the Messiah. So there's pushback when it comes to accepting Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. And then as the story unfolds, we see another reason why they reject Jesus. And that is simply because he is not the kind of Messiah they're looking for. Not the kind of Messiah they're hoping for. He does not meet their expectations. He doesn't fit their paradigm. Jesus says, doubtless, you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, we want you to do here in your hometown. Jesus's reputation as a miracle worker, it precedes him. And um, by the way, I was reading a little bit about Jesus's miracles and how uh, scholars interpret his miracles today and. Someone made the point that even the most liberal scholars, New Testament scholars, most of them, the great majority of them, admit that Jesus was a healer of some sort, a miracle worker of some sort. Now, they have their ways of explaining this. But, for example, uh, one of the leading liberal New Testament scholars of our day, E.P. Sanders, says it is an almost indisputable, listen, historical fact that Jesus was a Galilean who went around preaching and healing. It's almost, he says, indisputable. That's coming from a liberal New Testament scholar. Jesus did what Isaiah 61 said the Messiah will do. He proclaimed good news. He opened blind eyes. He set people free from oppression, from demonic powers. He proclaimed the year of God's favor. Well, the people of Nazareth, they want to see him do it in front of them. It's almost as if they're saying, "Okay, right here, right now, you demonstrate to us that you are indeed the Messiah. Sometimes you see this in the gospel story. that People will come to Jesus and they want him to perform a miracle, not because they're broken, not because of a sense of need, not out of faith but rather
1: from a place of skepticism,
0: prove to us that you are who you claim to be. Some people come to him and and challenge him to kind of perform for them. And Jesus, well, he doesn't play that kind of game. In John 6, a crowd comes to him and he says, uh, the crowd says to Jesus, what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? This is right after he had just fed them the 5,000 with some loaves of bread and some fish. But it wasn't enough. That miracle of feeding the 5,000 wasn't enough. They wanted to see something else. You need to do something else to prove to us. It wasn't enough to elicit faith, the miracle that they already seen. They wanted him to meet their standards of proof. Well, there's a lesson here about faith, I think, for us. To people who have that approach to Jesus... You have to meet some burden of proof that I'm going to put before you. Um, People who come to Jesus with that sort of level of skepticism and closed-mindedness, there will never be enough evidence to demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he is. Closed minded people can always find ways to explain Jesus away. You see this even in the gospel stories when the religious rulers finally get to the point. Okay, we admit that he is exercising demons. He has some authority over demonic powers. They can't deny it. It's happening all the time. So what do they do? They explain it away. They say, well, it's through the prince of demons that he's casting out demons. They explained it away. So there is a, a point here about faith. Evidence alone is not enough. It takes a work of the Holy Spirit to open people's hearts and minds. It takes an openness to what people see. And that's important for us as we seek to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people. As we seek to be a church that seeks to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, even with people who are skeptical and close minded to Jesus and are questioning and doubting. We have to do so from an attitude of prayer, from a place of prayer that God would open their hearts and patience with such folks. Patience, showing them the reasons to believe, but praying that God will in time open their eyes to see and change their heart. Well, Jesus does not perform the miracles they want to see, and his ministry certainly does not fit their expectation of what the Messiah should do. And this is what really gets the congregation's blood boiling. Because he refers to the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, the Old Testament prophets. And you read about them in 1st and 2nd Kings. And it was at a time when many people in Israel were not listening to the prophets, had turned away from God. And... Um, It's interesting to think about the parallels between the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of these prophets because these prophets foreshadowed what Jesus would do in their ministry. Think about it. Elijah healed people of leprosy. He healed Naaman of leprosy. Jesus healed people of leprosy. Elijah multiplied food. The widow of Zarephath, her jar of flour, was never used up and the oil never ran dry. Elijah multiplied food. Jesus multiplied food. Both Elisha and Elijah raised people from the dead. And Jesus did that in his ministry, raising people from the dead. So these miracles of Jesus are saying to the people of Israel, wake up. You've seen this before. God is at work in a powerful way. Remember, this is what happens when God is at work in a powerful way. And it's even more powerful now through Jesus Christ. God is at work in an even a greater way through Jesus. But here's the sticking point, And this is what really gets his hometown crowd. When he emphasizes, Jesus says, Elijah and Elisha, remember this, guys. They did these works among the Gentiles, among the foreigners. Those who are not of Israel. Zarephath was pagan territory. Naaman was Assyrian. This was a time, Jesus is saying, when many people were rejecting God's work, God's prophet. And He's saying to them, It's happening again. The same hard heartedness, the same unbelief, the same resistance to what God is doing is happening now in my ministry with you. History's repeating itself. And Jesus is saying, My ministry is going to bless even the Gentiles, it's going to bless anyone. Who receives me in faith. And that's what they don't want to hear. They do not want the Messiah to bless the Gentiles. They want the Messiah to crush the Gentiles. They want vengeance on their enemies. The Gentiles are the oppressor. They want the Messiah to defeat them, not to save them, not to heal them. And so they've had enough. And they form this mob. And they tried to throw Jesus off a cliff. This was a method that they used during this time to, to kill people who had committed a crime. They would throw him off a cliff and then the village would come and, and stone him, rain stones down upon him. And that's what they wanted to do with Jesus because he didn't meet their expectations. His message was too challenging. It blew their paradigm. It was not the ministry of the Messiah that they had in mind. So they rejected him. And this still happens today. There are challenging words that come to us from the lips of Jesus that are hard to hear. Think about some of the teaching of Jesus that's difficult for us to hear and obey. Think about, in our context, 21st century suburban, wealthy America. When Jesus says things like this, be on your guard against all sort of coveting, Because a person's life does not consist in what the culture says it consists of, which is the abundance of possessions. Be on your guard for that. Jesus says, don't store up treasure in heaven, but store up treasure in earth. Don't store up treasure in heaven where rust and uh, rust and moth can destroy this treasure. But invest in the kingdom of God and God will reward you and keep the reward safe. So. Put your treasure there. Make your investments there. Not in this world. Jesus said you you can't serve both God and Mammon. If you serve one, you'll love the one and hate the other. You can't have it both ways. You've got to choose. Where's your ultimate security? Where's your ultimate hope? What are you trusting in? God or money? Jesus says you can't trust them both at the same time. You have to have ultimate allegiance to God. These are difficult and challenging things to hear for us. What do we do? How do we respond? Jesus is teaching on lust, for example. If you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. He's teaching about marriage and divorce and sexual immorality. And some people hear these teachings of Jesus and they just say, I I don't want somebody telling me what to do in this area of my life. and So I'm not going to listen to that. I'll pick and choose what I'll listen to in terms of Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching about suffering. Some people have been influenced by the prosperity gospel. Their expectation is, if I follow Jesus, I will be more successful in this life. I will have better health, more wealth. It's just sort of a guarantee when you follow Jesus. These things are going to happen if you have enough faith. Very pervasive in our culture today. And yet Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The suffering is going to come. Trust me in the midst of it. What do you do with that expectation when the suffering comes? When his teaching doesn't spark joy. How do we respond? Do we reject him outright? Do we find a way to pick and choose what we'll listen to and obey? If that's the case, then we've put ourselves over the Lord and he's no longer the Lord. Or do we trust Him? Do we trust Him? And do we admit, are we honest enough to admit this is a hard teaching? This is difficult to hear. This does challenge, him, challenge me. This does push me. If He is Lord, if He is God, then we should expect His teaching to push us and challenge us. If that's not happening in our life, then we're probably not listening carefully enough. Do we trust Him? Do we trust His Word? Even when we don't want to hear it, even when it's difficult to understand, even when it's difficult to live out. We trust him because we say to him, Lord, I trust who you are and what you've done. And based on that, I will trust your word. Help me to believe it. Help me to live it out. Help me to walk in this. Coming to the final point here, his own people, his own people tried to kill him, but he escaped miraculously. Because his hour had not yet come. But the hour will come. The hour will come when he will allow his persecutors to seize him, to mock him, to beat him, and to nail him to the tree. The hour will come when he will absorb all this rebellion and unbelief and offense. And he will take it all upon himself. And he will pray in the midst of that rebellion and unbelief and really animosity and hatred towards him, he will pray, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The cross shows us Christ's love for sinners, Christ's love for rebels. This is how God wins us back to him. This is how God gets us to trust his word, because he demonstrates how much he loves and cares for us at the cross. You know, in any relationship, whether you're talking marriage, friendship, uh, a teacher to a student, a coach to a player, a boss to an employee, in any relationship, the, the right to speak into somebody's life, some hard and challenging words, is that you have demonstrated your love and care for them. You know, they're not going to listen to you if you think, if they think they're you're coming from a, a place of hatred or or, or, or a power trip. But if you have shown that you love and care for them, then you earn the right to speak into their life some difficult things and they'll be more receptive to it. You know, I remember hearing about, um, and this may be a sore topic to bring up today, but I remember hearing about when the St. Louis Rams were here and Dick Vermeil was the coach of the St. Louis Rams and how his players loved him so much. And I remember hearing Marshall Falk talk about this in an interview, and he said, you know, we would run through a wall for this guy, and we'll listen to whatever he said because he demonstrated how much he cared for us. He said talked about a time where he was going through something difficult, Marshall Falk was. And, and he came home, and there was Dick Vermeil sitting in his driveway, and he'd been there for a couple of hours just waiting to talk to this player to encourage him. And he said, after that, I would do anything for the guy because that's the kind of the guy – he was. He demonstrated love and care. So he had the, earned the right to speak into their life. If that's the case in human relationships, when our love is not pure, I mean, our motives can be twisted by sin. That's the case in human relationships. How much more when it comes to God's love in Christ? Perfect love. Why do we listen to his words even when it's hard to hear? even when it makes us uncomfortable, because we can trust that it's for our good, because he demonstrated his love and goodness to us at the cross. Amen.